You've got opposing a matrix here. If you're listening to this uh, live, um, here's what the deal is. Um, because of bandwidth issues, uh, Ralph and I have decided that uh, what we're going to do is um, do like we're doing today. We're going to make an intro video to the to the um, series, um, and there'll be an intro video each week, each Monday or Tuesday, me, Tuesday night, and it'll be uh, followed by the online version of the uh, presentation that Ralph has put online. So uh, we do this uh, to save on bandwidth. Uh, it was kind of hard when we were doing it, Ralph, wasn't it? We, 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 we tried to get it to work, but we just couldn't do it. Uh, so um, we're going to do it this way. And so we'll talk for, for a little while, maybe a half hour or so, and uh, Ralph's going to kind of introduce what, what this series is going to be. Um, Ralph, uh, what is this series? I forgot. We're going to do the, it's called Conspiracy Against Christianity. It's eight hours long, approximately. Right. So each of our, um, each of our sessions is going to be two hours. <laughs> um, not, not the session we're doing, uh, the, the prelude, but, uh, the, the thing in itself is going to be probably a little over two hours each one, uh, including this. So, um, anyway, Ralph, um, <clears throat> give us a little overview of what we're going to actually, um, I think we were going to start out by talking about, um, Discretionary spending and non-discretionary spending, because it's something on your heart, and it's something that you want to let the people know about. This is what I've, I've printed up. It's like this. I'm going to read it. Just read it, then we'll talk about it. Because I want I want people to learn something and then get, make it part of your vocabulary, because I want you to understand who's going to pay for all of these free things. We all think, oh, yeah, students say, oh, yeah, i got to get my... Uh, uh, um, student loan paid off and the government's going to do it. Boy, that's wonderful. Who's going to pay for it? Me. Mm-hmm. So what I did is I called this stuff that's entitled at the very top says free stuff. That's what we're going to read. Presidential candidates are offering the people of America free college tuition. We're going to pay off your student loan debt. We're going to give you free medical care. We're going to give you free abortions. We're going to give you reparations or payments to the blacks. So who's going to pay for all of these? Why, of course, the very wealthy. We all know that. That's why we can do this. No, I said the wealthy have bought off politicians already. Do you know uh, there's a thing called tax-free foundations? Have you ever heard of About the Clinton Foundation or something like that? Yeah, I don't doubt that that's a tax-free foundation. But let me go back. The the income tax came out in 1913. But before it did, the the large corporations were already creating tax-free foundations. Right. They don't pay taxes. The Kennedys have a tax-free foundation. The Kennedy family, probably several of them, one for each one. So Kennedy was had a tax-free foundation, and 
He didn't mind passing taxes on you and I that he didn't have to pay. Right, right. The car that Mary Jo Kopechny drove off the bridge was it covered, owned by a tax-free foundation. Huh. Kennedy was not in. Sometimes maybe we should talk about that. It's an interesting study. Right. Mary Jo drove the car, so we covered that. Maybe something we could cover in one of these uh, sessions to do from memory. Right. So, of course, the wealthy are not going to pay for it. It's going to be, guess who? The middle class. And here is how. Now, please, this is very important. I want you to memorize two uh, definitions. One is called non-discretionary spending. Non-discretionary spending. That means you get a salary. Let's make it easy salaries. And you use that money to pay the bills, like your mortgage, your insurance, your lights, your heat, your car payment, etc. These are payments you have to make. They're non-discretionary. You better make them because if you don't, if you don't pay your taxes, you're going to jail. If you don't pay your mortgage, you're going to lose your house. This kind of so that's called non-discretionary spending. Everything that's left over is called discretionary spending. So when you say, I want to go take a, a vacation, you decide to look at your checkbook. How much money have I got left after I pay my non-discretionary spending? And if you got money, you'll go. If you don't, you can't. Mm -hmm. So that's what they're going to tax. Your non-discretionary spending. The tax, they will tax until it disappears. Now, this is what's happening in California right now. Mm -hmm. I think I told you, I have a friend, I won't uh, do any particulars, but anyway, she's a, she, she was a college student at the U of A. And so she rented an apartment in Tucson at $500, had all the amenities, uh, you know, a, a basketball court and a tennis court and a gym room. You could work out a pool. Uh, they showed movies on Friday night. You could sit out in the sun outside if you wanted to. And that car, uh, clothes washers down in the basement or the first floor. And, uh, beautiful, man manicured, grassy stuff, covered parking, etc. So it was $500 a month. So when she got a job at, after uh, as a teacher in Modesto, she rented an apartment, the same thing, same amenities. For fifteen hundred dollars a month. Now, why? What's that extra thousand dollars for? It's because the guy's got to pay the taxes, and the way he does that is he raises the rent. That's right. So then, when he gets a new tax increase, he doesn't pay it. He passes it on to this little girl going to be a teacher in Modesto. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. Now, let me give you a thought. Non-discretionary is what you have to pay. Discretionary is that which is left over. Mm -hmm. If you want to go to the theater, you want to go see a movie, you want to go to a restaurant, you want to go visit your brother in the, the Topeka, and you got to buy gasoline, that's called discretionary spending. If you don't have any money left, you can't go. Right. And that's what they're taxing. And the middle class in California are abandoning the state. They're getting out of there. Now, uh, we have uh, buying a four bedroom house with uh, two, two um, 
bathrooms are going to cost you maybe $200,000. It's going to cost you five, sell it for 500000 in California. And you could come to Tucson and buy the same house for $200,000. Mm-hmm. And the $300,000 is taxes being raised. Now, let me give you this last thought. The government already knows how much discretionary spending you had. Oh, I've never sold them. Oh, yes, you have. When you pay your income taxes, you list all the expenses on your mandatory payments, like your big mortgage interest is still deductible, maybe not, but your your medical insurance, your your gas, whatever mileage, whatever it is. Most of those things are covered, and you're allowed to deduct them from your federal income tax. So then whatever's left over, you told them, Salary minus expenses means discretionary spending. So when uh, Bernie Sanders says, I'm going to cost you $39 billion, trillion dollars, he knows how much money he's called the IRS. How much money have the people in America have left over after they pay their non-discretionary spending? Wow. They know. Huh. That's why he can cost, he can raise us, he can raise $39 billion because he knows how much discretionary spending we have. We told them that in our tax forms. Right, right. Makes sense. They keep track of all of that. And it's probably something you maybe a birdie had to, you know, maybe buy or bribe somebody, but it's not public, but maybe it is public. I don't know. But that's the way we've already told them. Now, let me end with one last thought. Margaret Thatcher says, socialism taxes the non, the discretionary spending until it runs out and then it fails. California, it's going to fail. They've got a deficit budget. They're in debt trillions of dollars, billions of dollars already. Right. The reason they can't fix the fix the, 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 the people living in tents is because they don't have the money to do it. They're already spending for everything. And they're finding ways to tax people. Uh, they're going to start taxing, texting I don't know how they're going to find out. Maybe some way the computer can determine how much texting you do. And they're going to put something on our, there's an uh, insurance company that you can plug into your computer. If you've got a car with a computer, it's going to tell you how fast you go, how many miles you go. And I'll give a GPS anytime they want to know where you are. Uh, they uh, want to know what, what gasoline you bought. Maybe not that, but it's going to tell you whether you drive fast and it's going to clock if you're doing 80 and uh, in a kind of GPS in a, in a 50, they're going to know you're doing 30 miles an hour. You're not a good risk. And all that's going to be known. That's going to, that's going to happen. We've already got computers in our cars. I don't know how much they can tell the government, but no doubt it's something already. My car's six years old and it's uh, probably already on the machine. And they, they know when I drive, whether I drive fast or not. So let's go back over it again. Please get these words, get familiar with it. And when you hear someone say, well, listen, uh, the wealthy are going to pay it. No, they're not. The very wealthy have tax-free foundations, like Teddy Kennedy. Good example. He doesn't pay taxes, but he could vote taxes on you and I. Mm-hmm. You remember when they wanted to put those wind windmills out in his in his bay outside of his home? Yeah, in the ocean there. He's, yeah. He's, mm-hmm. hey, you can't do it in my backyard. Go sick it someplace else. No, wait a minute. We're going to do it. You're the one. That, Keeps telling us we need to get uh, you know, windmills or whatever wind things things are called uh, to function and range. So we're going to do it in your yard. No, you can't do that. You 
I take my boat out there and run to water, and I don't want to bump into one. <laughs> so these people get privileges. Yeah, they do. Okay, let me ask you this. In your words, what's non-discretionary spending? That would be, um, well, that would be um, everything. In other words, I bring a paycheck home every week, okay? Yes. And out of that paycheck, there's some non-discretionary spending already because yes. I have to pay taxes, state taxes, uh, federal tax, Social Security tax, union about, dues, the whole night. Yeah, every month. How about mortgage? Yeah, mortgage. How about the car, car payments, uh, utilities, everything else. Yeah, it, it comes yeah. up to quite a bit. And then what's discretionary spending? Everything that's left over. Right. So let's use a simple definition. Mm-hmm. Non-discretionary spending is those payments you have to make. Right. Because you can't. You can't just stop, oh, I don't want to make my house payment. You're going to end up on the street. I don't want to pay for the lights or the heat. Ha, ha, ha. And you're going to have me sitting in the dark. Right. This is the problem. So this is, it's non-discretionary. Economists have done this, and I understand why. They want to know how much discretionary spending you got left over. Because that's what they're going to tax. And that's the middle income people. The poor people don't have any income. Mm-hmm. Do they? they don't worry about money. Maybe they get little handout and probably they get they probably make more money than the average, the average guy working seven That's days a week. True in a lot of cases, yeah. <laughs> they make a lot of money panhandling. Yeah. Just getting up the corner with a uh, with a cardboard sign or walking some uh, intersection. So I want you to know discretionary is what is left after you pay your non discretionary spending. The bills you have to pay. Right. See once you understand this, then you know this free stuff ain't going to be free. Yep, that's right. That's what I got from some lady. Well, uh, my tuition's free. I said, you're telling me that you don't have to pay the University of Arizona? You're dry. I go. I said, you mean those teachers work for free? The people that do the groundwork around there, the secretaries, the, uh, the men who do the maintenance work, they work for free? I didn't know that. No, I never thought about that. <laughs> I want someone to pay up my board. My, uh, <laughs> I was watching a TV show, uh, it was probably years ago, and they were talking about this thing about some sort of uh, drug or whatever it was causing people to get, oh, they talk about these loans. And the lady stood up in the audience and she, she knew a, an attorney who got a law degree on borrowed money and she owed him three hundred thousand dollars. How is she gonna pay that off? Even if she gets a job at a hundred thousand, she's gotta live in New York City, let's say, where yeah. you can make three hundred thousand dollars, but you gotta pay that rent. The rent is like four thousand dollars a month or it's a little cold water flat or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And the taxi cabs are charging twenty seven of dollars a mile, whatever, just whatever it is that they they raise their costs to pay their taxes. Yeah, that's etc. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. So please, if you're listening to me, start getting you to understand this and tell your parents about it. Tell your friends, your neighbors, anyone that talks about this free stuff. Ask them what's non-discretionary spending. What does that mean to you? Mm-hmm. 
And they go, well, I've never heard that. I said, well, what's discretionary spending? Well, I don't know. So I said, you pay your taxes? Yes. Do you, do you have a car payment? Yes, I do. What happens if you don't pay your car payment? Well, I did repossess my car. Mm-hmm. What happens if you don't pay your charge accounts? Well, they, they throw, well, I guess they don't know what they do. They fine you or get you, maybe throw you in jail. I don't know. But somehow they're going to get their money from you. They'll attach your, your income. Then it becomes a discretionary, a non-discretionary fee. So we've got to get familiar with this because this free stuff ain't going to be free. That's right. You know, they, they had a, a, a little, I live on a cul-de-sac street at the end of a loop of, um, of um, uh, well, I guess it goes a little bit further, but we were, this one was, a section of it was built uh, on, it's on, on the, uh, the edge of a park where we live. We live against a park, a desert park. Uh, so they had a little tent up there and they invited the mayor or wherever it was to tell us how much it cost to do that. So I asked him, I said, how much interest did you, did you borrow the money to park, to pay for this, uh, pay me? Yes. Like, how much did the bonds cost us in interest? Well, I don't know. Well, wouldn't that be part of the cost? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess so. But I don't know how much. I said, listen, my friend, next time you want to build something like this, why don't you raise the money and set it aside, put it in the stock market, and then when you're ready, to, you won't have to pay any interest on it. In fact, the uh, people who uh, uh, the, you buy the stocks, they'll pay you interest, and you can use that money to build the park. Mm-hmm. Well, I never thought of that before. You see, I'm, they don't care. People live under false assumptions anyway. If you look at a, uh, let's just say you're applying for a loan, and they ask you, do you own or rent? Well, unless that house is paid for, neither. Because if you're if you're rent if you're renting, you're renting. But if you're paying a bank mortgage, you don't own that house. The bank owns that house until you finish that mortgage off. <laughs> it's interesting that I when I bought a station wagon in California, and my wife and I decided we had a, uh, we uh, had to pay you know some monthly payment uh, on the car. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I left, I, I I was told somehow that I had to. Ask them if I can leave to go to Oregon. Really? I guess the, yeah, because they might feel I'm going to run away, from, you know, and take the car. The car, the car is the uh, what's the word? The asset. Collateral. The, the, yeah. Collateral. That's the word. So if if I don't make my payments, they come and get the car. Or if I'm in Oregon, I'm like, well, they got how they going to do it? Mm-hmm. So they said, yeah, because it was almost all paid off, I guess. So I said, yes, you can take your car. I said, she knows it. Like you just said, it's not my car. The, the title was in their hands. Yeah. I didn't have right. the car. So that's, I guess that's the case with the house as well. So I paid my mortgage off. I don't know. Any, I haven't paid an interest payment on my house for probably 15 years already. Oh, congratulations. How much, you, how much I saved on that. You've accomplished something that a lot of us will, will hope to accomplish someday. <laughs> Well, it's the same thing. You know, I bought my car and I, I had uh, savings, uh, so I, I bought it cash. I went to the bank and withdrew the amount, exact amount, and gave it to the car dealer and drove away with the car. Uh-huh. And the title's in my name. Yeah. Oh, they, they say that once you get a license, it's not in your name. I mean, they're, they've got the title indeed. I don't I don't want to get into that. It's another issue. But I've heard there's something going on with that. So somehow the, the county owns your car. They 
whatever it is. So I just say, okay, well, that's fine. I've still got a, I got a license on my car, a, uh, a license plate on the back. Mm-hmm. By the way, since we got about five minutes, I want you to know that my license, I told you this, David, for your listeners, my car license plate is marked on the computer, do not ticket. And I'm about to send to the mayor. Uh-huh. Because, or the policeman. I'll bet there's a lot of people in Tucson who have that arrangement. And the reason I have that arrangement is because I took a bunch of classes and there were policemen in there, uh, and other policemen outside writing down license plate numbers because we were beating these traffic tickets. Uh-huh. I'm prepared to beat a traffic ticket. I know how to do it. So even if I got a ticket, I'm going to win. I'm going to beat them. And you're not going to like that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's enough. Well, that's what we're going to talk. Let's talk about what we're going to talk about in this thing. Sounds good. Okay, here's a part one. Uh, we're going to talk about the book written by uh, uh, Dan uh, Brown. Yeah, Dan Brown. Uh, I, I, I somehow got oh, I got the wrong side. It's called the Da Vinci Code. Mm-hmm. And uh, a friend of mine, they, they came out with four different versions of it. I bought the, the trade paperback. It's a little bit bigger. Uh, then, then the regular, uh, the, the smallest one is the one you buy off the shelf at the grocery store. Then they make a trade paperback for bookstores, but it's still paper, but it's a little bit larger. And then they sell, uh, the regular hardbound, which is the largest of all three. And then there's a, uh, also a large one, but it's got photographs in it. So I'll show you if they're talking about some cathedral, there's a picture of it or whatever. It is. So a friend of mine bought the hardbound, uh, with the photographs and, it had a dust cover. And uh, as you know, dust covers are put on the outside, goes to the inside, and comes out and goes around the back, and then comes around and goes on the inside cover. And it's intended to keep the edges of your book, uh, you know, dust free or injury, water, whatever it is. So that he noticed that uh, the every so many letters, in fact, it was at random. Uh, let's say the first word that I'll use in my, one of my uh, reparations. The word reparations was the first word. The next word was payments. So the R in reparations was in a bold font. And then in the word payments, the N was in a bold font. And all the, when you pull all these bold fonts out, they read, Oh, Lord, my God, is there no mercy for the widow's son? Which is what a basin says to identify himself to other Masons. Mm-hmm. So either Dan Brown, I believe Dan Brown was a Mason and asked them to do that so that the Masons, when they read the book, could figure out he's one of us. Right, right. So this book was intended, well, I'll, I'll just do it this way. The book holds, if you've never read it, because it was a big seller many years ago. In fact, they claimed that over 50 million copies of the book were uh, published. So I'll go with that. But anyway, Let's say that's true, because that's a lot of books. So it's published all over. But but the uh, book holds that Jesus Christ uh, survived the crucifixion, and he married Mary Magdalene, and the two of them came to France, and Mary died. I don't know. I don't remember how they explain Jesus, uh, where if he died, maybe he died in France as well, but they do. They did claim that Mary Magdalene died in France. And so a lot of people are digging, looking for it, but they pray, and that's the story. 
So this book purports that story is true. So I countered with the fact, and you're going to see that during this video, that there is evidence that Jesus did live. He was real. He died. He was crucified. He died and was resurrected. It's called the Shroud of Turin. Now, there's a second cloth called the, uh, oh gosh, uh, I'll, I'll have to think of the word, but there's, it's got two different names and I can't remember either one of them. Sudarium. The Sudarium was a cloth that they wrapped the head with as they're bringing the body down. So it picked up the same stains that the trout did because the body continued to bleed for a while. So the stains on the cloth, if they put wrap it normally, you could, it'll explain It'll duplicate the, 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 the blood stains on the shroud. So, and that, that, that cloth, the sidereum, has a history of being found in 500 AD. The shroud showed up officially in like 1300. So, so that's wrong. And then there's no, there's no biblical evidence that Jesus married anybody and that, that he did, was resurrected, but the shroud shows he was resurrected. But that's the story. So we're going to talk about that during this thing. You're going to learn about the Shroud. If you're a deaf, be open and just listen. So Dan Brown in the book says, we'll end with this last thought. He says that there's three major groups involved in this whole story. One is the Masonic Lodge. Um, I don't remember the second one. And the third one is the Priory de Sion. Priory de Sion, which is, I guess, uh, Latin or something. And it just so happens that it... They claim the Priory of Sion claims to be the forum. These things happen. What's that? I said these things oh. happen, phone calls. And stuff. Yeah, okay, thank you. Uh, I should have taken it off. But anyway, we, but, uh, I just hung up on him, so maybe he'll know I'm busy. So anyway, the, um, uh, so the, the third one was the Masonic Lodge. In fact, they matched Templar. And of course, the Knights Templar were real, but the other two were false. The Priory de Sion was a fraud. It was entered in some sort of French document that they've never heard of. And uh, it claimed that the uh, uh, Plantagenet, I think it was a bloodline of kings in France, and that that bloodline died out, uh, you know, so many years ago. But that someday there was going to be some a big major France, uh, French uh, uh, crisis. And they're going to turn back to the Plantagenet, I think that's the name, uh, bloodline. And guess who was the blame claimed to be uh, a blood descendant of the Plantagenet bloodline? The man who founded this phony Priory de Sion. So oh. we would turn, he become King Pierre Plantard. Isn't it interesting coincidence? But of course, uh, Dan Brown didn't talk about that in his book. And yet he should have known because Pierre Plantard made a video. There it is again. Uh, oh. Bill, I'm doing a talk show. Thanks. So anyway, uh, so anyway, uh, isn't that interesting coincidence? When they decide to make a Plantagenet king of France, guess who's going to volunteer? Me. <laughs> so just keep that in mind. We're going to document that. It's a phony. Mm -hmm. And it, so, oh, this thing is going to be, I want to warn you, it's going to be very distressing because this is really the final DVD, one of the last ones I was going to make on this subject. It's going to explain to you what's really going on with the Masonic Lodge 
and the Knights Templar and these related groups like the Rosicrucians, etc., are all going to be covered in this. You're going to find it fascinating. A lot of this information has not been made public by anybody. So we're going to watch the first two sections tonight, sections one and two. There's uh, two different DVDs, I think. Each one has about a, a two hour on it. Uh, maybe it's one DVD. You'll know better. I think there's four. So it'll be yeah, two, least two hours per section. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But there's two DVDs, I believe. Maybe uh, not. Uh, there's one and two in the first section, uh, three okay. and four in the section. Yeah. Well, maybe somebody connected them. I don't know. Okay. That would, that would be, okay. That's it. So there's two, there's eight parts, but on four DVDs for two parts. Right. So anyway, I want to thank you. Please remember discretionary spending and non-discretionary spending. And let's get those words into our vocabulary. David, thank you very much for the opportunity to reach your audience. And others, anyone else who watches, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome, Ralph. And uh, that having been said and, uh, and explained and everything, I think what we'll do is we'll just uh, tell the folks that we're going to move on to the next, uh, you know, uh, to the uh, video itself. Because uh, now they know what's going to be in there, and uh, and then we'll come back next week and and do the uh, the second of, of part the second part of four parts. Have a good day. Okay, here we go. Conspiracy against Christianity. Presenting the evidence that there is an active conspiracy in the world today set upon destroying Christianity. A presentation of Publius Productions. Delivered on October the 11th, 2010. Part 1 of 8. My name is Ralph Epperson and I will be the one presenting this material. Let me explain first that this is a PowerPoint presentation and it will not allow me to change slides while I am speaking. So this might sound a little disjointed and there will be short gaps while I am changing slides. I also want you to know that I am granting you permission to make copies of all parts of this DVD. And if you agree with the material presented, may I suggest that you make copies and give them to everyone that you think might watch them so that others may learn the truth about the attack on Christianity. I'm going to speak about the organized conspiracy dedicated to one purpose, the destruction of Christianity on all continents of this earth. I would dare say that this presentation will not be very pleasant to watch, because what I have discovered is very disturbing. But what you will see as you progress through this DVD is, as I'm hoping you will see, amply documented by evidence. And let me make the point that even if you are not a Christian, the destruction of Christianity will have a dramatic impact upon the way you live your life. Therefore, I would like to ask each of you to serve on a jury. That means that I'm asking you to be open and watch all of the evidence I will present before you reach a verdict. That is all I can ask. So if you will do that, 
I will say that this speech will be one of the most important you will ever hear. I think it will be helpful for you to know a little about me and why I felt moved to prepare this material. I am a graduate of the University of Arizona, but I can honestly say that what I was what I will be presenting was not taught to me while I was in college. I started reading what a friend of mine called revisionist history over 40 years ago. And I'm convinced that much of our history needs to be revised. As I continued reading on this subject, I grew increasingly aware that there was something going on in this world and that it was not pleasant. I wrote my first book entitled The Unseen End in 1985, and it is still being sold today. My second book is entitled The New World Order, and it is an examination of just what this thing is. By the way, both of these books are being sold in six European countries by independent publishers who asked for and received permission from me to publish it in their native language. My third book is entitled Masonry, Conspiracy Against Christianity, and it is the first book that I can find to ever document that worldwide Freemasonry has only one, quote, true purpose, unquote, the destruction of Christianity. And my fourth book is entitled Jesse James, United States Center. This book will provide the evidence that Jesse, perhaps America's most famous outlaw, did not die in 1882, but lived to be 103 and died in 1951. And between those two years, Jesse was a major figure in America's past. For instance, did you know that Jesse James arranged for the murder of General George Custer at the Battle of the Little Bighorn in 1876? It is true, and it shows just how much of our history needs to be revised. And I've been honored to be a guest on two History Channel documentaries. The first was called Secrets of the Dollar Bill, and the second was Secrets of the Founding Fathers. Now, with all of that out of the way, I would like to start with something that is bearing on what I will be discussing, but will not seem to be relevant to the subject. But I think it will be a good starting place for what will follow. I thought you might like to know why many of our young people are wearing their baseball caps backwards today. Here is the regular way to wear a baseball cap with the visor in the front. And the reason there is a visor on the cap is to keep the sun out of the player's eyes as he plays the game. And to prove that I am right, that the reason these young people are intentionally wearing it backwards is because they're being taught to reject our modern-day civilization. Please consider this photograph. This picture should be labeled dumb. And this is why women burned their bras during the 1960s. They were rejecting modern-day civilization that expected women to wear them. 
And here is additional evidence. This is Karl Marx, the so-called father of communism, taken when he was letting his hair grow long as a way of showing the short-haired civilization that he was living in, that he was rejecting it in favor of communism, a new civilization. And this is a photograph of Albert Pike, perhaps the greatest Mason of all time, also letting his hair grow long as a way of showing his contempt for the civilization he was living in. And that is the first clue about why people want to destroy Christianity. We are going to live in a new civilization called the New World Order. And to do so, we have to reject the old world order by replacing it with a new one. And with that, I would like to get started. Now, I do not know what the level of understanding is of each of you watching this today, so please bear with me when I discuss things that you already know. What I will be covering is not only important to the Christian. It is important to every man, woman, and child in the world for reasons that I will attempt to make clear as I proceed. This subject will, of course, be of importance to every Christian, but it also means that it will be important to every Buddhist, every Jew, every Muslim, and every atheist as well. As perhaps you know, a book by author Dan Brown entitled The Da Vinci Code was published in 2003 and has reportedly sold 60 million copies and has been made into a major motion picture starring Tom Hanks. This book claims to be a work of fiction, but many who read it will certainly believe it is real and will therefore question the teachings of the Christian church. So the question is, why did Dan Brown write it? And his book answers that question. Mr. Brown has the villain in his book say this on page 235. Almost everything our fathers taught us about Christ is false. And he explains why this is so on page 231. Mr. Brown has his villain say, The Bible is a product of man, not of God. And on page 256, he has the same villain say this. What good is documented, what good is a documented genealogy of Christ's bloodlines? Historians could not possibly confirm its authenticity, no more so than they can confirm the authenticity of the Bible. Let me just take a few seconds to explain just how wrong both of those statements are. This is a book entitled The Bible is History, written by Werner Keller, published in 1956. The book claims that over 7.5 million copies have been sold throughout the world and says that the book is a confirmation of the book of books how science has revealed the astounding truth behind the mysteries and miracles of the Bible. So Dan Brown is categorically wrong. 
The premise of Dan Brown's book is that Christianity has been concealing a secret from the world. That Jesus Christ married Mary Magdalene and produced a bloodline of people still on the earth today. And then on page 239, Dan Brown tells us about this secret. It is so powerful that if revealed, it threatens to devastate the very foundations of Christianity. And on page 267, the villain says, the villain says, I will tell you what will happen if the documents get out. The Vatican, meaning Christianity, will face a crisis of faith unprecedented in its 2000, two millennium history. And then Dan Brown revealed the secret by publishing his book. That must mean that he wished to devastate Christianity. But the question as to why Dan Brown released the subject has not been explained by anyone that I know of. So I shall try to answer it during this speech. U.S. News and World Report did a series of articles on the book on May the 22nd, 2006, and they interviewed a Catholic priest in Forest Hills, Pennsylvania. The priest said ordinary believers were being deceived by the pseudo-history in that book. The fiction passed off as history undermines what Christianity is all about. Then they quoted an American Catholic Monsignor as saying, in the short run, a number of people will be confused. The better way of countering the potential impact on Christian believers is to give good information to refute the bad. And I agree, and that is why I am delivering this speech today. I will be attempting to give good information to refute the bad. Mr. Brown gave an interview on National Public Radio in 2003 and said that all of the characters in action are fictional, but that the ancient history and the secret documents are all factual. And we shall examine that to see if he was telling the truth as we progress through the speech. And Mr. Brown explains on page 389 and 390 that the secret has been concealed inside three major societies, secret societies. Volumes have been written about the ties between three secret societies, the Masons, the Knights Templar, and the Priory de Sion. But Dan Brown is not the only one writing books about the lineage of Jesus. This book entitled Holy Blood, Holy Grail was written in 1982 by these three authors. Henry Lincoln, Michael Badgent, and Richard Lee. It appears as if this is primarily the source for the strange conclusions reached in Mr. Brown's book entitled The Da Vinci Code. This book has been translated into more than 20 languages, so it too has had a dramatic effect on the thinking of the people of the world. Let me start by saying that these three writers 
also made some shocking statements, like this one taken from page 19 of their book. So far as the New Testament is concerned, there is nothing that can be definitely proved. It cannot even be proved that Jesus ever existed. I'd like to address that claim before I start with the others. This is a book entitled Evidence That Demands a Verdict, published in 1972 and written by Josh McDowell, who was a staff member of the Campus Crusade of Christ for 10 years when the book was written. The subtitle is Historical Evidences for the Christian Faith. And Bill Glass, and a Christian evangelist, wrote this about the book. It is probably the finest reference book in the field of apologetics that has ever been written. I would like to discuss seven non-biblical sources on the historicity of Jesus. The first is Tacitus, who wrote in 112 AD, but was born in 52 AD, shortly after Christ completed his ministry. He wrote, Christ was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judeo, Judea, in the reign of Tiberius. The second writer is Josephus, born in 37 AD, just after Christ was crucified. And he wrote this. Now there was about this time, Jesus, a wise man. He was the Christ. And when Pilate condemned him to the cross, he appeared to them alive again the third day. These comments so far are completely in accord with the scriptures. The third source is Suetonius, a Roman historian who wrote in 120 AD. As the Jews were making constant disturbances at the instigation of Christ, Claudius, the Roman emperor, expelled them from Rome. The fourth source is Pliny the Younger, written in 112 AD as governor of Bithynia in Asia Minor. He wrote to the emperor Trajan on how to treat the Christians. He, meaning Trajan, had made the Christians bow down to statues of Trajan. But that he also made them curse Christ, which a genuine Christian cannot be induced to do. The fifth source is Tertullian, a theologian in Carthage around 197 AD, who mentions an exchange between Tiberius and Pontius Pilate. Tiberius, having received intelligence from the truth about Christ's divinity, brought the matter before the Roman Senate. The sixth source is Julius Africanus, who wrote about Jesus in 221 AD by writing that Thallus, an historian, had written in 52 AD about the season of the full moon was when Christ died. And the last source is Justin Martyr, 
who wrote about Pontius Pilate's report in 150 A.D. After he was crucified, those who crucified him cast lots for his garments. And later, Justin Martin, martyr, addressed the life of Jesus with this comment, that he performed these miracles, may easily be satisfied from the acts of Pontius Pilate. So here are seven writers, all of whom lived close to the times of Jesus, saying that he was real. And in fact, that Jesus did, in some cases, exactly what the Bible said he did. But apparently, Dan Brown and the three writers of the book entitled Holy Blood, Holy Grail didn't read Josh McDowell's book. And maybe I add my own research into the reality of Jesus Christ. The Shroud of Turin is real. It is the actual burial shroud of Jesus Christ. Modern science has proven that man, even with all of today's technology, cannot duplicate the shroud. In other words, it is a miracle. It is not man-made. Science has proven that this is the actual face of Jesus Christ as revealed on the Shroud of Turin. And that those reports that carbon dating proved that it was made sometime between 1290 and 1350 A.D. are false. An actual fraud was perpetrated against the people of the world by fraudulent scientists and clerics. If you want to see the evidence of that, may I suggest that you watch my DVD entitled The Shroud of Turn, because I prove without a shadow of a doubt that the cloth is genuine. This is a book entitled The Bloodline of the Holy Grail and subtitled The Hidden Lineage of Jesus Revealed by Lawrence Gardner, published in 2001. Mr. Gardner's credentials on page Roman numeral 2 state that he is a Knight Templar of St. Anthony, but it is not clear if this order is the same as the Knights Templar he discusses in his book. Mr. Gardner has some additional things to devastate the Christian faith beyond what Mr. Brown wrote. He says that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene on September the 3rd, 30 A.D., and was crucified on March the 20th, 33 A.D. And on September the 15th, 33 A.D., Mary gave birth to a daughter named Tamar, meaning palm tree in Hebrew. By the way, others have said that his daughter's name, if she existed, was Sarah. And sometime in 37 A.D., Jesus had a son also named Jesus. And in 44 A.D., Jesus had another son, and he was named Joseph after his grandfather. Now, I want to make it clear. There is not one shred of biblical and historical evidence that any of these claims are true. 
So we were left with only two options. You either believe God or you believe Dan Brown and Lawrence Gardner. And I want to make this clear as well. I believe God because he was an eyewitness. So during this speech, we will examine these secret societies to show you the reason why Brown wrote the book. I believe you will be just as alarmed at what Dan Brown is not telling us as you will be by what he is. I want you to know that I believe that this series of messages will alter the way you view history. I would also like to explain that nothing you will be exposed to in this presentation will alter in any way your traditional views of Christianity. You will continue to believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the living Son of God. And I also want you to know that the views I will be expressing in this series will be mine and mine alone. I have no staff, no foundation supporting me, and no researchers working for me or with me. I am completely independent, and I prefer it that way. In other words, I am completely responsible for all that I will be discussing with you. Now, once again, I would like to urge you to become members of a jury. And as jury members, you'll be expected to be as neutral as you can, forgetting all previous understandings, and make your decision on the evidence that I will present. In other words, please be open. After the eight hours of this speech has ended, you will be free to reach your conclusion. And by the way, when I quote scripture, I want you to know that I will be using the King James Version of the Bible. I would like to quote these historic words from Patrick Henry, one of this nation's great founding fathers, who said this about the truth back during the days prior to the signing of the Declaration of Independence on July the 4th, 1776. He spoke about the truth and why we should want to be exposed to it. He said this on March the 23rd, 1775. We are apt to shut our eyes against a painful truth and listen to that siren till she transforms us into beasts. For my part, whatever anguish of spirit it might cost, I am willing to know the whole truth, to know the worst, and to provide for it. And some of the material I will be presenting will be, as Patrick Henry said, a painful truth. And this is Ralph Epperson, who said this on September the 18th, 2010, while I was preparing this speech. I am willing to know the whole truth and to provide for it. So we shall now embark on an eight-hour journey into the truth. So I would like to ask and then answer the question. Is there some connection between his book and what is happening in America today. And I'm hopeful that I will be able to convince you during this speech that there is a connection. It seems that Christianity is everywhere 
under attack. And I will be attempting to show you that this is true because there are some people in this nation who want Christianity attacked. Now let me get to the matter at hand. There is a very important reason why Dan Brown wrote his book. And I had been studying that reason way before Dan Brown finished writing The Da Vinci Code. Let's go back to Mr. Brown's book itself to read this comment. Volumes have been written about the ties between the Masons and the Knights Templar and the Priory of Zion, the three secret societies. I will be presenting the evidence that one of these secret societies is a complete fraud and that the other two are alive and well even today. Let me start with this. For centuries, writers have been writing about an object called the Holy Grail. This is not it, but a picture of what people think the Holy Grail might look like. And the reason no one knows what it looks like is because history has not revealed what the Holy Grail is. According to some traditions, it was the cup from which his disciples drank at the Last Supper. According to other traditions, it was the cup in which Joseph of Arimathea cut Jesus' blood as he hung on the cross. Mr. Brown contends that the Holy Grail is the bloodline created by the birth of the daughter of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. So let me start by examining one of these three secret societies that Mr. Brown wrote about. On the first page inside his book, Mr. Brown makes this statement. The Priory of Sion, a European secret society founded in 1099, is a real organization. The Holy Book, Holy Blood Book revealed how they first heard about the Priory. The French journal Officiel is an official government publication in which all groups and organizations in the country must declare themselves. And in the July 20th, 1956 issue, the information required of the Priory, Priory de Sion is listed for the first time. So this was apparently the first anyone had heard about this organization. It is claimed that the Priory was discovered by Pierre Pantard, Plantard, who was the first who claimed that it was created in 1099. This is Josh Bernstein, an historian who recently did a documentary on History Channel entitled The Da Vinci Code Bloodlines. He discovered these facts about the Priory de Sion. Mr. Plantard claimed that the Priory was created in 1099, but that he only found it in 1956. He later filed the papers in the French National Library in 1967. And that these papers can still be viewed as the dossiers secrets. And by the way, please forgive me, I don't speak French or any other language other than English, so I might be mispronouncing these words. The Holy Blood Book tells us that the objective of the Priory de Sion is the restoration of the Merovingian dynasty and bloodline which had ruled France between the 5th and 8th centuries. They wrote that although deposed in the 8th century, 
the Merovingian bloodline did not become extinct. The priory was ruled by a grandmaster, and the Holy Blood Book listed all the 26 of these from the very inception to the current day. That list included such notable individuals of the past as Leonardo da Vinci, Isaac Newton, Victor Hugo, and Claude Debussy. And then Pierre Plantard claimed to be a direct descendant of the Merovingian kings. He predicted in the near future there would be a dramatic upheaval in France, a radical change in French, French institutions, which would pave the way for the reinstatement of the monarchy. So that means that if the Merovingian line was placed upon a new throne of France as kings, guess who would become the new king? King Pierre Plantard. Isn't that an interesting coincidence? But in 1993, Mr. Plantard started, stated under oath that he had made the entire thing up. So Mr. Brown's assertion that the Priory of Sion, a European secret society founded in 1099, is a real organization, is patently false. Mr. Brown did not do his homework. He wrote his book in 2003, and it was 10 years after Mr. Plantard stated under oath that he made the entire thing up. But that is not all. Josh Bernstein wanted to test Mr. Brown's hypothesis that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married and produced a bloodline, and that their daughter married into the Merovingian bloodline. Josh went to a university in Belgium and met there with one of Europe's most famous DNA experts and found out that it would be possible to test Mr. Brown's hypothesis by doing some DNA tests. So he found the remains of Queen Arnigund, a Merovingian queen who died in 561 AD in a French museum. This is a ring that was buried with her bones and that it was used to document that the remains were hers. He was able to obtain some bones and a tooth from those remains for a test. Then he found a Christian monastery and church in Israel whose members spoke Aramaic, the language that Mary Magdalene spoke when she was alive. He interviewed the archbishop of this church, and when Josh asked him to assist him in getting some DNA from some of his parishioners, the archbishop arranged it, and Josh obtained DNA from a man and his son. Josh then took the bone samples and the DNA from the two church members back to Belgium and gave them to the DNA tester. Josh returned sometime later and got the results from that doctor. There was no Middle Eastern DNA strains in the DNA taken from Crean Arnagoon. And if she had DNA from the bloodline of Jesus, those strains would have shown up. Therefore, modern DNA tests prove 
that Jesus did not father a child who married into the Merovingian bloodline. At the end of the program, Mr. Bernstein said, the Da Vinci Code is a very clever interweaving of fantasies and legends that have evolved during the last 2,000 years. His book is more fiction than fact. So Mr. Brown's statement that the Priory of Sion is real is an enormous lie. His statement that Jesus married and produced a female child is an enormous lie. The Da Vinci Code book says that the Priory of Sion created a military arm called the Knights Templar. The Holy Blood book tells its readers just how important the Knights Templar are. At their zenith, they were the most powerful and influential organization in the whole of Christendom, with the possible exception of the papacy. So the Knights Templar were founded in the early 12th century. The, the three authors of the Holy, book, Holy Blood book tell us one day in 1118, the founders of the Knights Templar presented himself, the founder presented himself with eight comrades at the palace of the King of Jerusalem with the stated objective. They should keep the roads and highways safe in Jerusalem for the protection of the pilgrims visiting the city. No one seems to question how eight men, even as valiant as these men were supposed to be, could keep the roads safe in a city the size of Jerusalem. But Ralph Epperson does. But the king agreed, and the Knights Templar started to perform that function. However, the three authors of the Holy Blood, Holy Grail book wrote this about that offer and acceptance. There is no record anywhere, not even later, of them doing anything to protect pilgrims. So the Templars must have had another mission. And according to page 212 of the book written by Lawrence Gardner, they did. Deep beneath the Temple of Solomon was the great stable complex of King Solomon. To open up this room was the secret mission of the Knights Templar, where it was known to contain the wealth of the Old Testament Jerusalem. So someone knew that the Jewish people had left a fortune underneath the original Temple of Solomon. None of the, none of the writers I read have written how the Knights Templar learned of this treasure but somehow they found out about it. One of the clues surfaced in or around 1947 when thousands of fragments of biblical and early Jewish documents were discovered in 11 caves near the site of Kir Bet Kum, Ron, on the shores of the Dead Sea. They are called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And one of those scrolls is called the Copper Scroll which makes explicit references to great quantities of 
bullion, sacred vessels, and treasure of an undetermined king left underneath the temple of Solomon. So it seems to be that someone found out about it and then developed a phony excuse to be there and dig into the ground underneath the temple. And on page 215, Mr. Gardner tells us when it was found. By 1127, the Templars' search was over. They had retrieved an untold wealth of gold bullion and hidden treasure. And they say that it was in 1127 that the Templars returned to Europe. So all three of these books claim that the Templars were the group who founded international banking. I would like to spend a few minutes explaining what an international banker is if this is a new term to you. Your local bank loans money to individuals and corporations. An international bank loans money to governments to finance their national debt. And just like your local bank charges you interest when you borrow money, the international bankers charge nations interest on the money they lend to them. So these authors were claiming that the Knights Templar founded the International Banking Fraternity. And the authors of the Holy Blood book tell us just how they extended their involvement. They became the bankers of every throne in Europe. Perhaps the greatest warning I can give you about the danger of international bankers was voiced by two of our founding fathers. The first was stated by Thomas Jefferson, America's first president, third president, who warned us about international bankers. It is incumbent on every generation to pay its own debts as it goes. A principle which, if acted upon, would save one half of the wars of the world. What he was saying was that bankers love wars because they are expensive and governments borrow money from international bankers to pay for them. The bankers then loan both warring nations the money to fight it and then charge the nation's interest. And according to Jefferson, if we didn't have international bankers, we wouldn't have one half of these wars. This thought was echoed by Benjamin Franklin, who told us why we should not borrow money. The, the borrower is the slave to the lender. And that is why I agree with Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin. Now, when you loan money to the government, you make certain that the king pays you back, not only the principal, but interest as well. And the way you make certain the king pays is you let him know you finance the nation on his border. And if he doesn't pay, he will encourage the king in the neighboring nation to declare war on the first king. And then the banker will collect the money he is owed himself after the first king is deposed. This threat makes the first king a little nervous because he knows that the banker is telling him the truth. 
that makes the banker the real king of both nations. And to illustrate this power, the authors of the Holy Blood book wrote this story. In 1252, Henry III of England, who lived from 1216 to 1272, dared to challenge them, threatening to confiscate certain of their domains. He said, you Templars have so many possessions that you rave with pride and haughtiness. And the master of the Knights Templar replied, What sayest thou, O king? So long as thou dost exercise justice, meaning as long as you pay your debts, thou will reign. But if you infringe it, thou will cease to be king. That is called arrogant power, threatening the king when he could command armies to suppress the Knights Templar. But they could because they could finance the king of a neighboring nation. Tony Robinson did a two-hour documentary on the Discovery Channel entitled The Real Da Vinci Code, and he did an excellent job of researching the claims of Dan Brown. He showed a clip of Mr. Brown in a televised interview saying this about the contents of the book. All of the art architecture, secret rituals, and secret societies are historical fact. And after Mr. Robinson examined what Mr. Brown wrote, he drew these conclusions about Mr. Brown's book. He said the book is rubbish and a big guess. Mr. Robinson then interviewed Michael Bajant, one of the three authors of Holy Blood, Holy Grail. He asked him about whether Jesus and Mary Magdalene had a child, and he said, there is no evidence there is a child. And then he asked him if this story about there being a uh, marriage between Jesus and Mary Magdalene, and Mr. Bajan answered, is it true? I don't know. So these two documentaries completely destroyed the facts presented in Mr. Brown's book. However, as I said, the Knights Templars and the Masons are real. And I would agree with Mr. Brown on that truth. Mr. Brown wrote that by the 1300s, the Knights Templar had amassed an enormous wealth and started challenging the Catholic Church. And then on page 217, Mr. Gardner implies that one of the customers of these international bankers was the Catholic Church who borrowed the money to build those magnificently beautiful Gothic cathedrals all over Europe. Many of these cathedrals were started in the 12th century, meaning shortly after the Knights Templar brought the fortune back from Jerusalem. So this, according to these two writers, the money borrowed from the Knights Templar was used to build these cathedrals all over the world. And it is they who became the international bankers of the world. So the second of these secret societies mentioned by Dan Brown, the Knights Templar, is real. 
and as we shall see, so are the third, the Masons. And they are the reason we must examine both of them in some detail because they are major players in the history of the world. First, let me start the explanation about the Masons. This is a very interesting book written, entitled Born in Blood, written by John Robinson and published in 1989. The book provides the evidence that the Knights Templar are the father to the Masonic Lodges. And I will first explore the link between the Knights and the Masonic Lodge. He confirms that the Knights were formed in 1118 in Jerusalem in the aftermath of the First Crusade. The Knights came upon criticism in 1307, and on Friday the 13th of October, orders issued by King Philippe IV were sent out to arrest as many of the Templars as possible. On November 22nd, 1307, Pope Clement V issued the papal bull entitled Pastoralis Preeminente, stating that the charges against the Templars appeared to be true. The Knights were arrested and imprisoned, and on March the 14th, 1314, Jacques de Molay, the Grand Master, meaning the president of the Knights Templar, was burned at the stake in front of the great cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris, France. And on page 224, Mr. Gardner provides us with a possible motive for the burning of Mr. de Molay. King Philippe IV owed a great deal of money to the Knights and was practically bankrupt. With papal support, King Philippe persecuted the Templars in France and endeavored to eliminate the order in other countries. He wanted to gain the control of the wealth of the Knights Templar to eliminate the heavy debt he owed them. The king did not achieve his primary objective, for the treasure remained beyond his grasp. A majority of the treasure was hidden away in the treasury vaults of Paris. Knowing that Pope Clement V was a pawn of King Philippe, de Molay arranged for the Paris treasure to be removed. In a fleet of 18 ships, most, most of which sailed to Scotland. Mr. Robinson on page 165 of his book supports the statement made by Mr. Gardner that the Knights Templar had 18 ships, but he adds another intriguing piece of history. The ships provided the means to make a living. For the ships were ideally suited for piracy. Could it be that all of those pirates in the past were in truth members of the Knights Templars? Is it possible that Errol Flynn and all of the other actors who portrayed pirates were in fact portraying members of this secret society? I think so. And that is why there were so many movies made about their exploits. Mr. Robinson amplified his statements by connecting the pirates to the Masonic Lodge on page 17 of his book entitled Born in Blood. A master mason, meaning a third degree, is told in his initiation rites that the degree will make him 
a brother to pirates. So the Masons acknowledge the pirates as being Knights Templars as well. Mr. Robinson then provides the reader with the story proving this. In 1813, a Freemason was captain of a merchant ship that was taken by a pirate. In desperation, the captain gave the grand hailing sign. I will explain what this sign is in more detail in a few minutes, but just for now, I will say that it is a sign that one Mason gives to let another Mason know he's one of the brothers. The sign was recognized by the pirate chief, who returned the Masonic captain's goods and sent him on his way. Please remember this story. It is our first clue that Masons protect their fellow Masons no matter what the cost. It will play an important part in our study a little later. Now let me return to the Knights Temper. As we just learned, the ship sailed to Scotland, and it was in Scotland that the Knights Temper gave birth to the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry. It is an interesting question as to why the Knights Temper felt they could escape the punishment of many of the kings in Europe who were arresting their membership. The three authors of the Holy Blood Book tell us the papal bulls dissolving the order were never proclaimed in Scotland. So many English and French Templars found a Scottish refuge. And that fact will play an important role in what we shall soon cover. Legend says, as I said, that as de Molay was being burned at the stake, he called down a curse on Philippe of France and upon all of his family for 13 generations. He then called upon both the king and the pope to meet with him within the year for judgment at the throne of God. Clement V died in the following month. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to laugh. This is not funny. It's serious. Pope Clement V died in the following month of April, followed by Pope's unexplained death in November of that same, by Philip's unexplained death in November of that same year. The Holy Book, Holy Blood Book gives the, the reader some clue that it was the Knights Templar that fulfilled the prophecy made by their leader. They wrote, there is no need to look for supernatural explanations. The Templars possessed great expertise in the use of poisons. So maybe the Templars were obeying a direct command of their soon-to-be-martyred leader, and that is why these two men met with de Molay in death. This is a book entitled Paolo VI, a book about Pope Paul VI, who was the Catholic Pope from 1963 to 1978. This book was published in Italy in 1998 and was sent to me about a year ago by a Catholic priest who had a working knowledge of Latin, but not of Italian. This book appears to claim that this pope was a member of the Masons, and the priest could not confirm that because his knowledge of the Italian language is not adequate. This is a color drawing of a three-tiered crown, apparently symbolic of the dominion of the Catholic Church over heaven, earth, and the spiritual world. I presume the keys are symbols of the keys of heaven believed to be given to Peter and the Catholic Church by Jesus. This is a drawing of Pope Gregory the Great wearing the triple-tiered tiara 
So it is a crown worn by popes. But there is one very puzzling picture and caption in this book. This picture shows the Pope carrying a three-tiered crown to the tomb of Jacques de Molay. This is a very strange event in the history of the Catholic Church since it was the Catholic Church that burned de Molay at the stake in 1314. So it appears as if the Pope was providing de Molay with their recognition of his earthly power. As I said, this is a very strange photograph. Now let me return to the Masons and the Knights Templar. From the 1300s on, however, there is little to connect the Knights Templar with the Masons. But it is known that the Masons had existed for hundreds of years before the official date of their founding on June the 24th, 1717. This is the date when the Masons claim organized Freemasonry started when four Masonic lodges joined together to form the Grand Lodge of England. John Robinson was not a Mason when he wrote his book entitled Born in Blood, but later became a 33rd degree Mason, the highest degree attainable. And this is how he connects the Knights Templar and the Freemasons. The Knights Templar formed a secret society of mutual protection that came to be called Freemasonry. And the main Masonic body in the United States is called the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry. So it is certainly conceivable that these men could have formed the Scottish Rite. Now let me show you a little about the Masons. First of all, it is vital in my opinion that we learn all we can about the Masonic Lodges. The authors of the Holy Blood book told us this on page 22. Freemasonry is of vital importance to any history of 18th century Europe as well as to the founding of the United States. But few history, few history books, but few history books even mention it. I would say that most Americans know little or nothing about this group, and yet historians are saying we should know all about them. And as we continue our study of the Masons, I'm hopeful that you will see the reasons why we know so little about them. First, let me provide you with some evidence that Dan Brown is a member of the Masonic Lodge. And once you understand that, what I will be presenting in the remainder of this speech will make enormous sense, because it is my contention that the evidence about the Masons proves that it is not an organization anyone would want to belong to. This is my copy of the Da Vinci Code book. The publishers printed four different versions of the same book. The regular paperback, the trade paperback like the one I bought, the glossy tabletop version with pictures of the pertinent locations and paintings discussed in the book, and the hardbound cover. The hardbound had a dust cover on it, and the publishers printed four paragraphs on the two inside portions, two on each end. This is the color copy of those two flaps made by a friend of mine who purchased the hardbound copy and then scanned it and sent me a color copy. And this is a close-up of the first paragraph. If you will look very closely, you will notice that certain letters are in bold, such as in the uh, paragraph 
example, in the fourth one, two, three, four, fifth word, the word business, the I, is in bold font. And those letters in this paragraph are is, I-S-T-H-E-R, and then there's an E. And these are all of the letters in all four paragraphs. I-S-T-H-E-R-E-N-O-H-O, etc. And they spell out, is there no help for the widow's son? This is a book written by a mason entitled Freemasonry Exposed, written in 1826 by Captain William Morgan. Captain Morgan claimed to be, have been a mason for something like 30 years when he published his book. We will be covering this book pretty thoroughly a little later today during this speech for a very specific reason. But for now, I would like to show you just one page of it because it will explain what these words mean. This is part of page 76 of Captain Morgan's book, and you will see these words in the drawing in their context. You will notice that those exact words, is there no help for the widow's son, are highlighted in yellow and red. In fact, it reads, oh, Lord, my God, is there no help for the widow's son? And are called, as you can see on the left, the grand hailing sign of distress. You will also notice that the paragraph on the right side explains how the sign is to be given. And you will see a drawing, of course, of the grand hailing sign being shown. The missions are taught that these words and the accompanying sign are to be used to identify yourself to another mason when you are in distress. And if the person who sees the sign or hears the words is a mason, he will come to the first person's rescue. It appears as if Dan Brown is using these words as a way of identifying himself as a Mason to any Mason reading the book. But only a small percentage of the people who read the book will first of all notice the bold letters and then find all of them in the four paragraphs. Then they would have to know what the words mean. And if they did, they would recognize Dan Brown as being a fellow Mason. So that is one of the reasons I believe Dan Brown had those letters printed in a bold font. I think it was his way, or at least the way of the publisher, of letting the Masonic members know that he was a Mason. And when I show you what the Masons believe, I think you will see why he wrote this incredible book for the benefit of the Masonic Lodge. Since I am talking about the Masonic Grand Hailing Sign, I would like to talk about an actual case when the words were spoken in an attempt to not have the gunman shoot the mason mouthing the words. This is Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon Church. Mr. Smith was born in 1806 and founded the Mormon Church in 1830. On March the 16th, 1842, Mr. Smith became a master mason in Masonic Lodge in Nauvoo, Illinois, which means that he completed the third degree. On May the 4th, 1842, about two months later, Mr. Smith released the endowment ceremony, the, quote, sacred but not secret temple ceremony, end quote. Bruce McConkie, one of the apostles of the Mormon Church, said in 1966 that 
The ordinances performed in the temple were given to the prophet Joseph Smith by revelation. Dr. Reed Durham, president of the Mormon History Association, has disagreed with that statement. He wrote that there is absolutely no question that the Mormon ceremony had an immediate inspiration from masonry. And on June the 27th, 1844, Joseph Smith was shot to death in the jail in Carthage, Illinois. Apparently, Smith recognized the shooters as being his fellow Masons. And knowing that they were trying there, they were there to kill him. And knowing that they were there to kill him, he started to say the grand hailing sign of the Masonic Lodge. Expecting to gain the protection its members are pledged to give a brother in distress. It was reported in the Mormon publication called Times and Seasons that he only got part of it out, saying, Oh Lord, my God, before he was shot down. John D. Lee, a key Mormon during this time, reported that Mr. Smith said the entire phrase, Oh Lord, my God, is there no help for the widow's son? But in any case, the Masons continued shooting until Smith was dead. Now, the question is, why would the Masons shoot their fellow Mason once he gave the grand hailing sign, identifying himself as a member of the Lodge? And the only answer that makes sense is that the Masons knew that the endowment ceremony reveals Masonic secrets. And that Mr. Smith had taken an oath as a Mason not to reveal any Masonic secrets when he joined the Lodge. So in this case, the grand hailing sign did not protect him. But if he revealed Masonic secrets in violation of his own oath, the Mason knew that he could suffer a death penalty for having done so. Apparently, Mr. Smith did not connect the shooting with the fact that he released Masonic secrets in the Part 2 of 8. This is the diagram representing the various organizations inside the male-only Masonic Lodge. The lower rectangles marked in blue represent what the Masons call the Blue Lodge, and it consists of three degrees. Those degrees have names, and they are... The first degree is called Entered Apprentice. The second degree is called Fellowcraft. And the third degree is called the Master Mason Degree. While I am here, I will briefly discuss the rest of the Masonic organizations. The Mason can stop after he has completed the first three degrees, but if he wants to go on, he may do so. He may either go on into the Scottish Rite, shown here in the green, for an additional 29 more degrees for a total of 32. When he has completed these degrees, he is called a 32nd degree Mason. He has an option of going on into what is called the York Rite, 
shown in yellow, and there are a total of 10 more degrees for a total of 13 in that lodge. Once the mason completes these degrees, there are no more for him to go through, meaning he is finished going through degrees under his own volition. However, there is a 33rd degree, and that is on top of both of these lodges shown in that diagram in pink. This degree is by invitation only, meaning the mason has to be invited into this degree. And without an invitation, he cannot become a 33rd degree mason. There is another Masonic organization called the Shriners, which the 13th degree York Rite Mason or the 32nd or 33rd degree Scottish Rite Mason may join on his own. It would be shown between the two lodges, but underneath the 33rd degree. I have had Masons tell me that this is called the fun degree, and many Masons join the Shriners so they can dress up as clowns or ride horses in parades. There is one important thing that I must mention about the Shriners, and that is about the little hat that they wear called the Fez. It is, as you can see on that last slide, a red or maroon colored hat that looks like an inverted flower pot. This is how the Shriners in Tucson describe the Fez. This book is similar to the yearbook we all got in high school, but it was published by the Shriners in the city of Tucson, Arizona. It is full of pictures of the Shriners and their wives and provides details about their activity activities in the past year. And on page four, they publish this paragraph describing their hat called the Fez. The Fez, which nobles of the mystic shrine of North America have the privilege and honor of wearing, has been handed down through the ages as one of the most significant of all headdresses. The Fez derives its name from the place where it was first manufactured commercially, the holy city of Fez in Morocco. And that is the extent of their explanation of it. And they somehow failed to offer us the rest of the story. A good explanation of this noble headdress comes from Mick Oxley, a native of England, a former member of the English Masons, and a student of Islam as he traveled to various parts of the world before he retired from the Royal Air Force. He heard the story of the Fez in Egypt from some of his Muslim friends called Mullahs, the Islam teachers who had bragged that at Fez the Muslims took revenge for their losses during the Crusades by executing 50,000 Christian men, women, and children. This event, as I recall, took place around 800 A.D., which would make it a story, as the Shriners told us in their yearbook, handed down through the ages. Now I'd like to return to Mr. Oxley's quotation. The Mullah said that even unborn babies were murdered. They boasted that the blood of the slaughtered Christians was running deep in the streets of the holy city known as Fez. And the Muslim executors dipped their white hats called turbans into the Christians' blood and 
proudly place the now blood-red hats on their heads as symbols of their triumph. Although Mr. Oxley was told they attacked the Christians in Fez as an act of revenge against the Christians for their losses during the Crusades, one can just as easily presume that the reason they attacked the Christians was because they did not wish any non-believers in the holy city they were founding. I did an Internet search for the city of Fez on the Internet and found this comment made several times. Fez is the spiritual, religious, and cultural center of Morocco. Fez was founded in 808, so it can be presumed that the Muslims had to purge their city of the Christians before they established their holy city. These hats, red hats, were known as fezes from that time forward, and the Shriners call those who wear the fez a noble. Yet the hats are in truth a symbol of the Muslim, Muslims' victory over Christianity in the town of Fez, Morocco. And the Shriners claim that they have the privilege and honor of wearing this symbol of a victory over Christianity. So this is our first clue that somehow the Masons are involved with the murder of Christians and that some of the Masons commemorated with the wearing of the fez. A symbol of a bloody victory over the Christians. And to show you that the fez can be a symbol of Lucifer, also called Satan the devil, let me show you a picture of the fez with the star of Lucifer, Satan the devil, on it. This picture is in a catalog of items for sale by a company that sells lodge paraphernalia to members. I will show you that this star, with one point down, is indeed the star of Lucifer, also called Satan the Devil, a little later, as I discuss the use of stars in our past. This is a book by Jim Shaw, a 33rd degree Mason, and I shall cover it in more detail later in this series. However, Mr. Shaw was also a member of the Shriners, and he made a comment about their ritual. With the Quran, meaning the Muslim Bible, on the altar of the Masonic Lodge, we sealed our solemn oath. In the name of Allah, the God of Arab Muslim, and Mohammedan, the God of our fathers. Notice that he said that Allah was acknowledged as being the God of our fathers. Please explain to me how a Christian or a Jew can make such an oath, but according to this 33rd degree Shriner, they do. Now let me expand our knowledge of the Masons by reading two quotes from Manley P. Hall, a 33rd degree Mason and one of the greatest Masons of all time. He wrote this, Masonry is the most powerful organization in the land. It is an ordainer of kings, which means it sets kings on thrones. Its hand has shaped the destinies of worlds. These two quotations by Manley P. Hall represent, uh, present rather, they represent <laughs> they present a completely different view of masonry than most of the American people have. 
if they have any view about the lodge at all. I will repeat that I believe it is fair to say that most Americans who are not members of the Masonic Lodge know little or nothing about this group, especially the conclusion that they are as powerful as Mr. Hall has stated. Some of the remainder of the Americans know a little, possibly because they know a friend, family member, or business associate who is a member. But even these people know very little about the Masons because they are a secret organization, choosing not to reveal what they stand for to non-members. I want to make this point while I'm at this juncture. I am not a Mason, nor have I ever been a Mason, nor have Masons broken their vows of secrecy and delivered these materials to me, and I have not stolen the Masonic books that I read. I have bought them from used bookstores or in many cases from a 32nd-degree Mason in Montana who sells them to the public. So in that sense, the Masons are not secret. However, I would say that most Americans do not take the time to read their own literature. And since the Masons are secret, they do not tell us what goes on behind the closed doors of their lodges. Even a wife of a Mason cannot find out what her husband is taking vows to because he has sworn not to tell anyone. And she cannot attend the rituals her husband is going through. And I always ask a Mason what that does to his marriage where there's secrecy between husband and wife. Those Americans who are Masons know, of course, more than the average American. But even then, only a small percentage of these men truly know that masonry is as powerful as Mr. Hall reported. So basically, the overwhelming majority of the American people and the Masons do not know much about the Masonic Lodge. However, if you've seen a square and a compass, a star with one point down and two points up, or if you've watched the East-West football game, you have seen the Masons. If you've gone to the Shriner Circus, you have seen the Masons. But to stretch these visible, non-controversial images that the average American has of the Masons to an organization that shapes the destinies of worlds is almost totally unreasonable to most Americans. But Mr. Hall, a leading Masonic writer, said that they are the most powerful organization in the land. And if he doesn't know, one might ask just who does. So a great place to start as to whether or not Mr. Hall is correct is with some history about America with a particular question. Has America been the most powerful organization in our land? This is Henry C. Clausen, the past sovereign grand commander of the Masons, meaning that he was their president of their fraternity. He wrote that 23 of the 39 signers of the Constitution were members of the law. And, of course, 23 of the 39 signers of the Constitution would be a clear majority. So whatever the Masons wanted, they had the authority to obtain. 
The Masons officially state that only nine of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence were Masons, but this figure is open to dispute. The reason that no one knows for certain is that many Masonic records were destroyed in the Revolutionary War of 1776. Manly Pial wrote a book entitled The Secret Destiny of America, in which he discusses the nation's future. He wrote this. There exists in the world today and has existed for thousands of years a body of enlightened humans united in what might be termed an order of the quest. It is composed of those whose intellectual and spiritual perceptions have revealed to them that civilization, notice not just the United States, but civilization, worldwide civilization, has a secret destiny. Secret, because this high purpose is not realized by the many. He also discussed the order of the quest in another of his books entitled The Secret Teachings of All Ages. Not only were many of the founders of the United States Masons, but they received aid from a secret body in Europe. Mr. Hall does not say who this secret body was, but it appears to have been the Illuminati formed by Adam Weishaupt in 1776, about the same time that the founders of this nation were creating the United States. Mr. Hall continued, this group helped them to establish this country for a particular purpose, known only to the initiated few. So America had a particular purpose, a secret destiny known only to the Illuminati, the Masons, and the Order of the Quest. Mr. Hall further told us who at least one of the group known as the Order of the Quest was. He wrote this on page 134 of The Secret Destiny of America. Benjamin Franklin spoke for the Order of the Quest. And most of the men who worked with him were also members. So the Order of the Quest, the Illuminati and the Masons, created this nation with a secret destiny not known to the average American. And then Mr. Hall tells his readers where the evidence of this conspiracy can be found. These are the two sides of the Great Seal of the United States, and both have been reprinted, as you can see, on the back of every American dollar bill. You can see those words underneath the two circles, meaning the Great Seal of the United States. Some of the information I will be sharing with you came from the, this book entitled The Secret Symbols of the Dollar Bill, published in 2004 and written by David Oveson. Mr. Oveson appears to be a member of the Masons, but he doesn't say that in the two books that he wrote that I have read. But his second book has an introduction in it from the Sovereign Grand Commander of the 33rd Degree Scottish Rite, so it is fair to presume that he is a member. These two circles were unanimously adopted in 1782 by our founding fathers, and the eagle side of the two circles has been officially used ever since. 
But the pyramid side was not really known to anyone until Henry Wallace, who was Secretary of the Agriculture and later was to become President Franklin Roosevelt's Vice President, saw the two seals together in 1933 and went to see the President with the suggestion that he put these two circles on the back of the dollar bill. President Roosevelt agreed, and then he instructed the Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Morgenthau, to accomplish that task. And they became part of our money in 1935. All three of these men were members of the Masonic Lodge. This is a picture of President Roosevelt taken from Life magazine showing him wearing his white apron, a symbol of his membership in the Masonic Lodge. I have found no Masonic literature which explains what the apron signifies, but I know that the Masons wear one during most of their initiation rites. For instance, this is a book entitled A Bridge to Light given to me by the author Rex Hutchins. I will cover this book more in detail a little later in this series, but for now I want to show you the apron. For instance, these are the symbols of the fourth degree called the secret master. You will notice at the bottom left the apron is drawn with symbols on it. There is no explanation what these symbols mean, so the non-Mason cannot find out. These are the symbols of the sixth degree, and notice that the symbols on the apron have changed. So all we can say at this time is that the apron is used as an important symbol in Masonic lodges for reasons that a non-Mason cannot find out. We will discuss the apron later in another context, one that will help us understand why they wear such an apron. Now let me get back to the Great Seal of the United States. Now, if I asked 100 people in Tucson just what all of these things on the back of the dollar bill meant, I would probably get an answer like, I do not know. And then I would ask the next question. Why do you not know? And they would say something like, I do not know. But notice that everyone in Tucson carries these dollar bills in their wallets or purses, and it is American money. But we do not know what these symbols mean. Uh, uh, wait a minute, I've got, I've got to correct what I just said. The only people in Tucson who do not carry dollar bills in their wallets are authors of books on the conspiratorial view of history. Because I ain't got none. Now, this is a slide made of the sign I hold on the intersection of Broadway and Harrison in Tucson. I will sell books for food. And I'm sad to <laughs> report that it doesn't work. Now, since these two circles represent the Great Seal of the United States, the question becomes, what is a seal? Webster's defines it as an official design used to mark a document or to authenticate it. The first seals were created by kings and consisted of hot wax being poured onto a document, and then the king would press his ring into the wax, which was then allowed to cool off. That way, the person receiving the document or viewing it would know it was official. 
Obviously, you only need one side of a seal to make it official. So if the American seal has two sides, one has no direct purpose. So if it has no direct purpose, it must have a hidden purpose. And Mr. Hall tells us that it does on page 181 of his book entitled The Secret Destiny of America and in additional writings of his. There is only one possible origin for these symbols, and that is the secret societies which came to this country 150 years before the American Revolution started. The Revolutionary War started in 1776, so 150 years prior to that year would be 1626, about the time the Pilgrims and the others came to America, including the Order of the Quest. Uh, by the way, notice that I labeled this uh, slide the College Math 101, <laughs> because I don't have much confidence in our public school system about teaching mathematics. You have to learn it in college. So Mr. Hall is saying that at about the same time the first settlers were coming to America, another group came who intended to set this nation up with a secret purpose in mind. Mr. Hall continued, the Great Seal was directly inspired by the Order of the Quest, and it set forth the purpose for this nation. And he added these comments in another part of his book. If the design on the eagle side is stamped with the signature of the Order of the Quest, the design on the pyramid side is even more definitely related to the old mysteries. What he was saying was that these symbols on our dollar bill are related to the ancient worship of what he just called the old mysteries, meaning, I believe, the ancient mystery religion. This is the reverse side of the Great Seal by itself. Notice that the eye is above the pyramid and not upon it. In other words, the work of creating the New World Order is not done as of yet. The Great Seal was created in 1782 and will not be completed until the eye finally sees itself upon the top of the pyramid. And all of my 44 years of research indicated that that date of that event was known to our founding fathers as January the 1st, 2000, Anno Domini. Now, I cannot explain why it did not happen as our founding fathers had planned it. But I would like you to know that as I was touring the country with my book in 1985 to 1987, I was warning whoever would listen that the New World Order was coming and that it was scheduled to begin on January the 1st, 2000. I believe that that means that those who designed the Great Seal in 1782 knew what they were doing. They were placing this nation on a track to some secret destiny, and they knew they had over 200 years to change, to create the changes, 200 years to create the changes needed to bring it about. They knew that the American people would never approve of their secret destiny, and that was why they kept it secret and concealed it in the symbols of the Great Seal of the United States. These men had an evil purpose. They made their plans in secret. 
and there were two or more involved. Those are the requirements of the definition of a conspiracy. In fact, Webster's defines a conspiracy as a combination meaning two or more people meeting in secret with an evil purpose. And that is the word that describes the actions of our founding fathers. Now, you might remember that I read the words of Patrick Henry at the beginning of this series and how he warned us about a, quote, painful truth, end quote. Let me show you what our founding fathers committed this nation to. So may I humbly repeat my request that you be open, and then you can decide if I'm right or wrong. Now let's examine the symbols in the Great Seal of the United States. As I have said, most governmental seals have only one side, so if the American seal has two, one has no direct purpose. First, let it, first then, it becomes important to define the Latin phrases shown on the reverse side. The phrase annuit coeptus means annuit announcing or the announcement of, septus or coeptus, the conception of or the birth of. The second phrase is novus ordo secorum, and it means novus new, ordo, order, secorum, meaning world. So the phrase means the new world order. So the Latin phrases on this side of the Great Seal are translated in total to mean announcing the birth of the new world order. And this was incorporated into the Great Seal in 1782. The pyramid is another symbol, and it too has a hidden meaning. The student must question why the Founding Fathers even put a pyramid in the Great Seal at all, because there are no stone pyramids in the United States. And notice that the American pyramid is smooth on all sides. Now, there are pyramids in Latin America. This is a photograph of one of those pyramids in the area south of the United States. Notice that it is stepped, meaning the line on each side is broken by steps constructed out of bricks and or stone. But notice one thing. Twice each year, the sun rises in such a way as to shine only on the wall of one side of the stairway, revealing a snake of six segments, with the seven, the seventh, seventh segment being its head, and notice once more an open mouth. So it appears as if the snake has come to the earth from the heavens to teach the people. I will explain what that means a little later. These are the three most photographed pyramids in Egypt, and even though they appear to be stepped, they were constructed with smooth sides and many of the stones were removed during the early years of construction of the city of Cairo. You can still see some of the facing stones on the top of this particular pyramid. So there must be, and is, another reason for the Founding Fathers to place a drawing of a pyramid in the Great Seal. Manny Pial discussed the pyramid in the Great Seal as being a model of the Great Pyramid of Giza near Cairo, Egypt. He wrote this on page 178 of his book entitled, The Secret Destiny of America. 
Here, meaning on the reverse side, is represented the Great Pyramid of Giza. The Great Pyramid of Giza near Cairo, Egypt, is the one that is featured the most of all the pyramids in Egypt. It is the one with the secret passageways inside that lead to what Egyptologists call the King's Chamber, the highest room inside the pyramid, the Queen's Chamber, a room in the approximate center of the structure, and a room below the ground level underneath the pyramid. It is commonly believed that the pyramid was built as a tomb for the pharaoh Khufu and his wife, but Mr. Hall believes that this belief is not correct. He wrote in The Secret Teachings of All Ages. The theory generally accepted that the pyramid was the tomb of the pharaoh Khufu cannot be substantiated. He then wrote about why he believed the pyramid was constructed. The pyramid and the all-seeing eye represent the universal house. Notice that he said that the pyramid was a house, meaning it is a place where God to reside. Surmounted by the radiant emblem of the great architect of the universe, meaning the eye inside the triangle. So Mr. Hall is informing his readers that the pyramid was not built as a tomb, but was constructed as a house for a God to live in. And he named that God as being the great architect of the universe. And I will reveal the identity of that God a little later. This is Albert Pike, perhaps the greatest mason of all time. You've seen this picture before. He added one more piece to the puzzle when he told his readers in his book entitled Morals and Dogma, published in 1871, that there was another important understanding of the pyramid. He wrote this on page 460 of that book. The pyramid was erected in honor of the sun. So Mr. Pike was stating that the pyramid had some connection with the worship of the sun god, the sun rather, the worship of the sun as a god. And Mr. All added another ingredient to the puzzle. The pyramid was used to initiate men into a worship of this hidden sun god. The initiation took place in one of the subterranean halls of the Great Pyramid in Egypt. That must be this one, shown by the red arrow on the bottom, because it is the only one that is below the earth line. Mr. Hall continues, through the magic, majestic passageways and chambers of the Great Pyramid pass the illumined of antiquity, meaning those illuminated by the initiation. They entered its portals as men. They came forth as gods. I would like to go back to the reading of Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. The serpent is talking to Eve in the Garden of Eden and says, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, meaning the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. 
So ye shall be as gods if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you do, you can come forth from the pyramid initiation as gods. Now that seems to me that during this initiation, they learn that they can become gods. Mr. Hall just said that the Illumined were passing through these hallways during antiquity, meaning this has been going on for thousands of years. It has been estimated that the Great Pyramid of Giza was built around the year 2560, meaning about 4,500 years ago. The ancient mystery religion is 6,000 years old, and it is found on every continent, in every culture, and in every religion. This is a book entitled The Mysteries of the Chartres, I presume, Cathedral. I won't spend time on discussing the connection between this Catholic cathedral and the Masons, but this author discusses the pyramid in Egypt, and it is this that I would like to spend a few moments on. He makes this observation that the Egyptian pyramid is built on an angle of inclination of 51 degrees and 25 minutes. Then he makes the observation that the angle can no longer be measured exactly because the polished limestone facing has disappeared. If you take a line divided into 13 equal sections and create a triangle with sides of four sections and a base of five sections, you get angles in the sides of 51 degrees and 19 minutes. This is extremely close to the estimation of the angle of inclination of the Great Pyramid of Giza. That seems to say that the designers of the Great Pyramid of Giza knew the significance of the number 13, 4 plus 4 plus 5. Now, I want to make an observation before I will cover it in more depth, but it is extremely pertinent to a study of the Great Pyramid of Giza and the pyramid on the back of our dollar bill. So please accept this just as something to consider for now, and that I will present more evidence about the number 13 a little later. This is a book by author Stan Deo entitled The Cosmic Conspiracy. And he makes the point that the number 13 is the value assigned to represent Satan, the devil. It appears as if those who built the Great Pyramid of Giza concealed the fact that it was dedicated to Satan in the angle of inclination. Now back to the issue. As I said, 23 of the 39 signers of the Constitution were members of the Masonic Lodge, and many, according to Manly P. Hall, were members of the Order of the Quest. As I already mentioned, one specific example of those who spoke for the Order of the Quest was Benjamin Franklin, and he was one of the major founding fathers as he signed both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Yet he wrote those in politics could use words to deceive. This is what Ben Franklin wrote on page 110 of his book entitled Benjamin Franklin, an autobiography published by P.F. Collier and Son as one of the Harvard classics. Franklin tells us 
how he and some of his fellow legislators in their government tricked their fellow legislators. He and some of his fellow legislators in Pennsylvania wanted to purchase some gunpowder, but they knew the Quaker legislators would not approve the purchase of such an article of war. So they voted an act for 3,000 pounds, meaning at that time the English pound, for the purchasing of bread, flour, wheat, and other grain. And after the legislation was approved, they bought gunpowder with the 3,000 pounds. Some of their fellow legislators objected, claiming that they did not authorize that. But Mr. Franklin told them that gunpowder was indeed other grain. They had just invented a way to conceal their trickery by hoping that the legislature would think that the phrase other grain was another ingredient or many ingredients of bread. And Mr. Franklin provided his readers with another example of their trickery and deceit. They wanted to purchase, quote, a great gun, end quote, presumably a huge cannon. They wrote up legislation to buy a, quote, fire engine, end quote, and the legislators voted for the fire engine. And Franklin used the approval to buy his great gun. As Franklin pointed out, surely a great gun is a fire engine. So one of America's leading politicians just wrote that legislators could use words to deceive. Was it a coincidence that Mr. Franklin was a member of the Masons? Not at all. In fact, he was taught that there were no absolutes like thou shalt not cheat your neighbors. And we'll cover that further in much more detail later. Please remember that Benjamin Franklin signed both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And that he spoke for the Order of the Quest, another secret society that concealed a secret destiny for America. Let me now return to the discussion of the Great Seal. The symbols of the Great Seal of the United States that they designed are concealing hidden truths from the American people. So these were the men who formed the government of the United States. Now let me show you a way you can tell who designed the Great Seal of the United States. This is the front side of the seal showing the eagle. Notice that above the head of the eagle is a six-pointed star made out of 13 five-pointed stars. This is a close-up of that symbol. This six-pointed star is the Star of David, the father of Solomon, the builder of God's temple in Jerusalem. But the Masons are not a Jewish organization. They are non-denominational in that they allow each member to believe in whatever God he chooses. But they do have a connection to the building of the first temple of Solomon. And I shall discuss that a little later in this speech. And here is some evidence that it is a Masonic symbol. This is a photograph of the Prince Hall Grand Lodge of Freemasons in Maryland. 
By the way, the Prince Hall lodges are for blacks and blacks only. This is the close-up of the building to the right, and you will see four of the eight or nine six-pointed stars on the top of that building. So you can see that the Masons use the symbol as a sign. They are cognizant that it is not the Star of David. And the reason they do is because of the hidden number 13 in the star itself. And here's my explanation and only my explanation. Notice this. There are six outer points, meaning the triangles pointing away from the center, and seven inner spaces inside the star. And, of course, if you add the six points to the seven areas, you get a total of 13. I have drawn in the six lines to make up the six-pointed star above the eagle on the back of the dollar bill, and you will notice that it is made up of two triangles, one pointed down and one pointed up. Now, we are going to transport these lines from the eagle side to the pyramid side of the Great Seal. And this is a slide showing you how it looks when you put the six-pointed star down on the pyramid. Notice that the triangle with the eye in it points to a blank space between the two words, annuit and septus. But the other five points point to five letters. A at 10 o'clock, presuming this is like a clock, 10 o'clock, A at 10 o'clock, S at 2 o'clock, N at 8 o'clock, and the second O in order at 6 o'clock, and of course M at 4 o'clock on the right-hand side. Those letters are together A-S-N-O-M. There is a word in a dictionary that describes the scrambling of letters in a word to conceal the actual word. M-A-S-O-N, and of course the word is anagram, and when you re-scramble the letters A-S-N-O-M, you get an anagram for M-A-S-O-N. So this is the concealed way you can know that the Masons are the men who designed the Great Seal. The Masons hide things in plain sight. Now let me return to the Great Seal of the United States. This is the, once again the eagle side of the Great Seal, and if you count the feathers on each wing, you would find 32 feathers on its left wing and 33 on its right wing. The God that I worship created all of the animals in the world, and he does not make imperfect eagles. So this is not a drawing of a real eagle. It is a symbolic eagle. And as I have mentioned before, there are 32 degrees and 33 degrees inside the Masonic Lodge. Notice that the eagle is looking towards the side with the 33 feathers. There is another 33 on the dollar bill. The words, the United States of America, at the top of both sides of the bill, have 24 letters, and the words, one dollar, have nine, for a total of 33. I remember that in my high school civics class, there was a debate amongst this nation's founding fathers over whether the bald eagle or the American wild turkey 
should be the national bird of this nation. But my research shows that there was no debate at all. The eagle was intended to be this nation's bird from the very beginning, and that the appearance of the debate was a ruse and a scam. In their books, the Masonic Lodge and others will convince the researcher that the eagle was an important symbol of something else. The following are six quotes on the subject, five of which were written by members of the Masonic Lodge. I will not cite the source of each quote, but just show you the quotes without attribution. The eagle is a symbol of initiation. The eagle is of great antiquity, a symbol of the sun. The eagle was sacred to the sun. The eagle was a bird consecrated to the sun. The eagle represented the Egyptian sun god, Amun-Ra. And the following quotation is one of the explanations as to why the eagle is sacred to sun worship. The eagle is also supposed to be the only creature that can look directly into the sun without going blind. Now, this is an interesting observation. If a human looks directly into the sun, it is quite likely that that person will go blind. But in this quote, the author was saying that an eagle can look directly into the sun without being harmed. But there is a symbolic and concealed meaning behind this statement. It conceals the symbolic thought that the eagle can get directly to the sun god and that man cannot. This is the concealed meaning behind the symbology of the eagle, in my opinion. But few Americans, if any, know what all of the symbols on the great seal mean. As I briefly discussed, the numbers 32 and 33 are significant to the Masonic Lodge. But the numbers show up in some rather interesting concealed locations. This is the government of the, I'm sorry, this is the symbol of the government of the old Soviet Union. And as you can see, it is a globe with what appears to be wheat stalks on either side. But the semicircle to the bottom appears to be out of place and without a logical explanation, especially when you count the rays protruding from the center because there are 32 of them. The semicircle, which when completed, would be a full circle, meaning it could be a symbol of the sun, when added to the 32 rays would total 33. One can only imagine what these Masonic symbols have to do with the Communist Soviet Union. The numbers appear once again in this, the symbol of the United Nations. First of all, the leaves on each side total 13. Uh, my suggestion is that you do not count the base. And as shall be discussed later, and as we've already briefly mentioned, the number 13 is a significant Masonic number. But the globe is divided into 32 divisions with the circle at the top. It is not complete, presumably because it would intersect with portions of the globe and you wouldn't be able to see it. And the circle would be the 33rd number in the symbol. Once again, 
The Masonic numbers 32 and 33 are concealed in the symbol of the United Nations. This is a picture of the room where the Security Council of the United Nations meets. If you count the number of lights in the circle in the ceiling, you would count 32 of them. 32 plus the circle they are in would be 33. Before I explain why the numbers 32 and 33 are significant, let me show you other instances where the numbers show up. This is a drawing of a woman carrying the Olympic torch through a worldwide run to publicize the Olympics to be held a few months later. The torch is 32 inches long, and the flame on top would be the number 33. The flame is not lit by a match, but by the rays of the sun focused through a magnifying device. This is a picture of five Greek women lighting the torch on Mount Olympus, the home of the Greek god Zeus. So it is a pagan god who lights the torch for the Olympics. This is a famous photograph taken during World War II showing six American soldiers raising the American flag during the Battle of Iwo Jima. This picture became famous when it was used all over America as a symbol of the success of America's fighting men. According to this article printed in October of 2006, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a 32nd degree Mason, showed it in 33 cities during an attempt to raise money during a bond drive. And to show you that Franklin Roosevelt knew the significance of the number 33, he went to Warm Springs, Georgia, underneath the 33rd degree northern latitude to pass away in April of 1944. While I am here, I would like to mention that I believe that the president committed suicide in Warm Springs, Georgia, because he was certainly very near death himself. When I toured the United States between 1985 and 87, I met two individuals in two separate cities who told me they both knew Roosevelt's medical doctor and that they had been told he blew his brains out with a shotgun. There is partial support of this idea with the publication of this article in my local newspaper in 1986. It related that Elliot Roosevelt, one of Franklin's sons, stated that Eleanor, the mother, the wife, had refused to let Stalin's ambassador see the body of Franklin Roosevelt to confirm that he was indeed dead. All she had to do was allow the ambassador into a room with the casket and allow him to open the lid to see the body of Franklin, but she refused. And one of the possible explanations might be that it was because Franklin no longer had a head. This is a picture of the NASA orbiter Discovery landing on runway 33 of the shuttle landing facility in Florida. It appears as if someone in charge of numbering runways at the Space Center is a Mason. And that statement is true. This is a book entitled Masons Who Helped Our Nation. 
and it is an official book of the Masonic Lodge. It was written by Henry C. Clausen, who we've looked at before, 33rd degree, and the Sovereign Grand Commander of the Supreme Council of the entire 33rd degree. This is page 60 of the book, and it is here that Mr. Clausen discusses the involvement of the Masons in our space program. He mentions that one of the top executives of NASA was Kenneth Kleinecht, a 33rd degree Mason. Mr. Kleinecht was the deputy, I'm sorry, Mr. Kleinecht was the manager of Project Mercury, deputy manager of the Gemini program, and manager of the Apollo program. Mr. Clausen then reports that this Kleinecht was the brother of the Sovereign Grand Commander of the Masons, C. Fred Kleinecht, another 33rd degree Mason, shown here on the right, shaking hands with President Ronald Reagan. President Reagan became an honorary 33rd degree Mason while he was in the White House, and that was the reason that Mr. Kleinecht was there. This is page 61 of Mr. Clausen's book, and it shows some of the astronauts who have been members of the Masons. Mr. Clausen mentioned that four of the original seven astronauts were members of the Masonic Lodge, Gordon Cooper, John Glenn, Gus Grissom, and Wally Sherrod. This is an interesting tidbit of the involvement of the Masons in the NASA space program. The first man scheduled to walk on the moon was Gus Grissom. His name, his real name is Virgil Grissom, but he's been called Gus for many years. His name also has 13 letters in it. Gus died on January the 27th, 1967, when he was aboard the Apollo 1 command module during a test at Cape Kennedy. A spark inside the module caused the oxygen atmosphere to burn with him and two other astronauts inside. I believe that Gus was murdered by NASA because he had been speaking out about the problems with the entire Apollo space program. This is a rather dark photograph of the lemon that Mr. Grissom attached to the Apollo capsule in front of the NASA symbol. The other astronaut who was in his first trip to the moon would presumably have stepped up into the first position, but Buzz Aldrin, a 32nd degree Mason, didn't have 13 letters in his name. So NASA selected another astronaut to be the first man on the moon, and it was Neil Armstrong, and his name has 13 letters. Just another strange coincidence, I am certain. By the way, there is a clue that Neil Armstrong did not go to the moon. This is a book about him entitled One Giant Leap by Leon Wagoner, I presume, and it says this on page 9. One Giant Leap is an intriguing account of an individual, meaning Neil Armstrong, with a seemingly 
impossible dream. And the author says this on page 13. The dream was so vibrantly real that six-year-old Neil was afraid to tell anyone of it. And that dream was to walk on the moon. The book then discusses how Neil worked to get into a program that would allow him to walk on the moon. This is the part of an unnumbered page at the back of the book. And this is a quote attributed to the astronaut Neil Armstrong. As for as far as for rather as for walking on the moon, sometimes I wonder if that really happened. I wonder if walking on the moon really happened. I can honestly say, and it's a great surprise to me, that I have never had a dream about being on the moon. It's a great disappointment to me. And then the author says that Neil Armstrong had a dream since he was six years old to walk on the moon. But Neil says that he never had a dream about being on the moon. And then he says he wonders if that really happened. Did, did it really happen? He wonders if it really did. I can clearly remember the day that John Kennedy was assassinated 47 years ago. But Neil Armstrong wonders if he made a trip to the moon. The answer is obvious to me. He cannot remember because he did not go. And this is his way of saying that he didn't go. So he only gives us clues that he didn't go rather than tell the truth. By the way, maybe it wasn't Neil Armstrong who first walked on the moon. Maybe it was Louis, <laughs> Louis Satchmo Armstrong. So there are re reasons to believe that the Masons are very important to the space program. And I will offer one more proof. This is a picture of NASA astronaut Buzz Aldrin, reportedly the second man on the moon, presenting a Masonic flag that he carried to the moon on the Apollo 11 moon flight to a fellow Mason. You might remember that it was Buzz Aldrin who socked the reporter in the face because he asked him if he went to the moon. But all of this shows that the Masons have a, had a major role to play in the entire space effort. There's the Supreme Council flag, a close-up of it. If the entire Apollo program is a lie, who better to lie and keep the secret but members of the Masonic Lodge? Now, this is an aerial view of a World War II cemetery somewhere in France where 14,000 American soldiers lie buried. If you account the number of sections divided by rows of trees, you'll notice that there are eight of them. And if you multiply the eight by four, meaning the number of sides in each section, you will, of course, obtain the result of 32. 
meaning there are 32 rows of trees in the cemetery. Then if you add the entire cemetery as one, you will get the number 33. Secondly, a careful count of the number of trees on each of the long sides reveals that there are 32 of them, showing that someone who planned this cemetery quite likely was a member of the Masons. This picture shows the artist's opinion that the number 33 is somehow linked to the body of a snake. This is a picture that accompanied an article in the Tucson City Citizen newspaper on February 27, 1997. The snake has 32 skulls drawn along its body and the eye. About the same size would be a total of 33. This drawing shows Quetzalcoatl near the arrow, a Latin American sun god descending from heaven on a ladder with 32 rungs. If the place he is coming from is heaven, that would be the 33rd rung on the ladder. This is an important drawing for reasons that will be discussed later. By the way, this drawing shows that a modern-day rock and roll musician was once worshipped as a god. This is a, <laughs> a close-up of the god in the upper left of the main drawing, and it clearly shows that Ringo Starr, the drummer for the Beatles, was <laughs> once worshipped as a god in Latin America. Uh, that's the last time I'm going to buy a joke from off of the Internet, I'll tell you that. And this drawing will show the connection between the number 32 and the circle representing the sun being the 33rd when it is connected to the number. This is a representation of a Mayan stone cut to represent the sun and its 32 rays. And the Masons have 32 degrees in their fraternity, and the 33rd degree is the one that only those somewhat worthy, somehow worthy of attaining it are invited into. 32 and 33 are indeed magical numbers involving the worship of the concealed sun god. And this is possibly the reason. This is a drawing of the human body showing the backbone. There are 32 vertebrae in the human backbone. And if you count the head, which is attached to the backbone, you have a total of 33. I was watching a documentary on one of the History Channels a few months ago when they mentioned that there was a tribe of people called the Padang people in Thailand. Their women, their women put rings on their necks to make it longer, and they mentioned that the maximum number of rings they can place there is 32. That means the skull that sits atop the rings would be the 33rd ring. The documentary did not say why only the women practiced this strange activity, but it might have something to do with the fact that it was Eve who, first, who was first tempted by the devil in the Garden of Genesis. She got man's first taste of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, this is only my impression and no more than an opinion, but it seems to make sense. Maybe the Padang people blame women for this predicament, and they decided to move the woman's mind further away from their body, maybe as a way to punish her as a symbol for what a woman, a woman did 
to mankind. As I said, this is just an opinion, and I do not deny that it is rather a fanciful one, but it seems to make sense out of a strange practice. I don't know how they found out about the number 32 and 33, but it is just an interesting 